This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley at the Times and Sunday Times Cheltenham Literature Festival. Having a lovely time. Coming up on today's episode, uh, you'll be able to hear a debate that I did with uh, Tom McTague, Aisha Hazarika and Peter Cardwell, all about personality in politics. Who's got it, who hasn't, and does it matter? It's a special live debate uh, here at the festival. As an extra bonus as well, you're able to hear from Giles Brandreth. I bumped into him, obviously former Tory MP, jumper wearer, bear collector, all-round lovely man. So you'll hear from him in just a moment. But first, our columnist panel. And today, joining me in the Times Radio studio tent was David Sanderson, arts correspondent for the Times, and Manveen Rana, presenter of the Stories of Our Times podcast, one of our sister podcasts at the time. So there we are, David and Manveen. You've been here since the very beginning, David. I have since uh, Friday. Yeah, goodness, yeah. So we're more than halfway through it, but well, it's been a, it's been a feast for the mind. What's been the best thing, best person, event that you've been to? Well, the most stimulating was probably Susie Dent, actually, the doyen of, of Countdown's Dictionary Corner, who was just fascinating. Like yourself, she has great comic timing, but perhaps <laughs> unlike yourself, she has a great... She, she knows things. She knows things. <laughs> so she is a fantastic lexicographer. And she, she, was, she mounted this argument about the positivity and the negativity of the English language. And you have all these negative words like reckless, feckless, discombobulated, but you also have the positive counter of those. So you can be combulated and you can be wreckful, feckful, etc., etc. So she said that it probably did say something about the national psyche that we concentrate on the negatives rather than the positives. Are you now trying to smuggle some of those words in, into copy? Have you managed to get anything in the paper yet? I've got two words that have never appeared in the Times before in an intro, which I'm very proud which of. Which were what? what were they, they were wreckful and they were... I've forgotten. <laughs> it was a good one, though. Yeah, yeah, it was a very good one. What about you, Mammy? You've been doing chairing lots of events. I, I've been chairing events, which is always fun. So I did, um, I did John Barnes on Monday night. Very good. Uh, I'm about to. I'm doing a, a panel on Northern Ireland coming up later today, and then something on identity in the internet age. That's a mixed bag. That <laughs> generalist. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I think they just throw me at whatever's that. Yeah, like, <laughs> Mavic, 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 <laughs> could, could pretend to be interested in that. <laughs> pretend. 
end. <laughs> been fascinated by everything I've done so far. That is true. That is very true. Now, um, uh, David, you were with Jimmy Page last night. Uh, yes, yes. And the yes. one thing that everyone is talking about this morning is the fact that he went for a toilet break halfway through. He just got up and walked off. <laughs> he he did off. say, I hope you don't mind if I leave for a minute. And uh, Will Hodgkinson, who was interviewing him, said, of course, of course. And then he, at least Jimmy Page had the wherewithal to say to the sound people, uh, you might want to turn the microphone <laughs> off. <laughs> so he did disappear for five minutes, which I covered book festivals for eight years, and that has never happened before. It was an extraordinary moment. We're assuming that he went to the toilet, but for yes, a pee. But given his history... <laughs> No, no, I like to make clear that's David's insinuation <laughs> and not mine or the views of Times Radio. Um, uh, how has it been, David? Because you've been to these so many times, the first post-COVID one. Yes. People just seem to be really enjoying it. There's a few masks, but not very many. No, no, there's not. There is a, There seems to be a sense of liberation and there's obviously great enthusiasm for being here and being in the room in person, which is just great, you know, to actually see yeah. people rather than on a screen. The only... Jonathan Franzen, I think, is the only person that I've seen on a screen. And there, there, there was that divorce between the audience and the speaker. But everything else has been fantastic. You know, it's, everybody has been really enthusiastic. It's so nice to have a live audience, because last year they had one, but it was socially distanced. So you'd walk in and there'd sort of just be islands of people <laughs> here and there. Yeah, Great for atmosphere. Yes. <laughs> it was very dispiriting, actually. But credit to them it's for almost, putting something on But those year. small yeah. groups of people is almost worse, worse. than no audience. Because <laughs> yeah. yeah. then you can pretend yeah. there's a cheer. And instead you just sort of have people like, you know, isolated clapping. No, the, the, the one that we did yesterday, having just the, the roar of a crowd was terrific. It was so... <laughs> like you I mean, Matt, you get that everywhere. Well, that is true. <laughs> he walks into the office roar. <laughs> <laughs> I just carry around my own uh, sound effects <laughs> box. <laughs> so I get a round of applause wherever I go. The joys of working in radio. Do you ever, when you've been doing these things, and you're just like sort of throwing, man, for me, go do this, go do that. Do you ever get starstruck? Who's the biggest person that you've <gasps> Starstruck? Um... N no, but that's only because uh, I started life actually covering literary festivals like this as a diarist. So I was straight out of university and you were just chucked into a room and you always had to go up to the most famous person there and start chatting. So like very quickly, you just got quite used to it. What's your, what's your best, op you've probably both done this, your best opening gambit to strike up a conversation with a celebrity who doesn't really want to speak to you? Uh, <laughs> God, I've used all sorts. <laughs> I, I mean, once I had to talk about wallpaper with Madonna. <laughs> Hang on a minute. This is... What? Well, you, <laughs> you, you have to find Here. a way of getting... No, that, oh. that, was, a, that was at a, a fashion party a long time ago. <laughs> and what, where did she stand on wallpaper? Well, she seemed fascinated by the wallpaper in there, but I think it's because she was avoiding seeing or talking to anyone. She was just looking so at the wall, and that was everything they had to go with. So it was the only thing you could really um, you could go in on. <laughs> David? I don't know of anything that can compare to that. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you about William Morris's wallpapers, but that's about there, there it. Was yeah, yeah. There was an event. There was an event. There was. Cheltenham. Yes, Something Cheltenham. for everyone. You, you do get everything. You can go from Matt Charlie to William Morris wallpaper. But the, the, what is fascinating is that the, the, this uh, curator of the William Morris Gallery did have a, a serious point to make about period dramas, Victorian dramas, and how in the background there is inevitably there is some William Morris wallpaper. But at this time, then, he was very much somebody that was providing wallpaper for the avant-garde. You know, there's very few people that did have it up. But now, because it is readily available, then it becomes a cheap, easy solution. And it's and all the rage. Perhaps not cheap. Yeah. That's sort of, you know, Boris Johnson-style <laughs> <laughs> refurnishing yeah. now, isn't it? Very William Morris, very sort of... That's um, it. You talk, you talk about wallpaper, wallpaper with Madonna, but I, I end up talking about... <laughs> 
Cammy Johnson's wallpaper. You do seem to keep coming back to it. <laughs> <laughs> and this is nice. The, the Times Radio wallpaper we've got behind us as well. Um, uh, should we talk about space? I'm interested in this, this um, uh, Prince William. Isn't happy about people going into space. Yeah, yeah, he's very much taken a leaf out of his dad's book, it seems. And uh, if you see his full, uh, if you hear the full interview, then it's fascinating. He says that his dad did have a very hard time when he was raising these environmental issues, you know, however many years ago. But it's also, I would argue that this is Prince William striding quite forcefully into the political arena. Yeah. And it'd be fascinating to see how mm. that plays out. You're saying that entrepreneurs should focus on saving Earth rather than engaging in space tourism? Because, you know, whether it's William Shatner or Jeff <laughs> Bezos or whatever it I is. I mean, it is interesting, it is, isn't it? At a time where we're all sort of supposed to be much more conscious about not taking unnecessary flights <laughs> and taking one off the planet but seems it's a little not, excessive. It's not, not just the, like, the, clearly there, are, there is an emissions issue, but also, like, as we've seen during the past 18 months of the pandemic, when the world throws everything at a problem, we can get a vaccine much more quickly and all that sort of stuff. And in fact, if they just took all of that, focus and attention and effort and technology and all of that that's putting William Shatner into space <laughs> and maybe diverted it towards carbon capture and storage or, you know, That is sort of the worrying thing though, isn't it? You suddenly have all these individuals with their own tastes who have more money than a lot of nations. Yeah, yeah. You know, while a lot of countries are having to cancel their space projects or aren't being able to sort of send up, um, you know, the satellites they want to, it's really bizarre to see... You know, just because Jeff Bezos wants to go and do a particular thing, it's not necessarily linked to what science wants to be investigating yeah, yeah, in space. Yeah. It's not sort of being focused by, by where science wants to be. And it's not just, I mean, if you look at sort of Silicon Valley, they're doing this everywhere. Yeah. They're suddenly obsessed with anti-aging stuff and living forever. Uh, you know, this isn't, this isn't how a That's country would need. sort of choose not, yeah, to, exactly. yeah, yeah, to yeah. invest. And, it, you know, it's, it, it's hard to tell whether this is really where science wants to be either. A lot of this stuff is, is sort of slightly on the edges of... Credibility. And it's always the men, isn't it? It's, it's always, always the, the men. men. And there was, was it Jeff Bezos's rocket that was particularly <laughs> phallic? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's basically the billionaire equivalent of a Lamborghini, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> it's a midlife crisis. It's a midlife crisis. Yeah. And it's they all get divorced and then buy a rocket. <laughs> <laughs> but then you see what Jeff Bezos, his wife, is doing, and that she's given all of her yeah. wealth away to good causes. Uh, again, you're right, it goes down to the gender it division. Is, Although the, I mean, Bill Gates, you know, actually unusually in that world, you know, Bill, Bill, the Bill and Melinda well, Gates Foundation. he did while it was the Bill and Melinda Gates. It'll be interesting, interesting to see what he does post-divorce. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> by all accounts, all the stuff coming out so far doesn't make it sound like he was... Yeah, um, maybe he's going to walk away from that and he's going to yeah. go and get a rocket himself. Go back to the partying we keep hearing about now. <laughs> little paperclip will pop up, pop up and say, I think you're trying to go into space. We've talked quite a lot about this, about Sally Rooney uh, this week, just because obviously it's Cheltenham, that's what people have been talking about. And her say she doesn't want her book uh, translated into Hebrew. But there's a really interesting piece by James Marriott in the paper today uh, that you want to talk about, Manvi. What's he written? Well, we, we, we both read it. And so it's, just a, it's a brilliant column because he sort of talks about how difficult it is for novelists in Britain and America to be taken seriously the moment they start talking about their views effectively. You know, nobody <laughs> wants to hear it. Whereas in France, um, you know, you're in instantly a public intellectual and they take everything you say as sort of some great pearl of wisdom. You know, here we keep seeing it with Hilary Mantel and people and everyone just sort of, there's a collective national rolling of the eyes. <laughs> <laughs> just like, make it stop. Just write your books. Yeah, whereas in, in France, I mean, you know, 
<laughs> I'm not sure it's always a good thing, but you know, you do have people like Bernard-Henri Levy, you know, a man who's famous for saying, God is dead, but my hair is perfect, <laughs> effectively marching the country into war in Libya. <laughs> and then recently, you know, when Afghanistan was falling apart, he rocks up in Panjshir to talk to the rebels, and you think, God, haven't they suffered enough? <laughs> but, you know, there is sort of a danger with the French system that actually <laughs> people who uh, are just very fond of expressing their opinions do get taken very seriously. I mean, what is next? Is Sally, Sally Rooney going to be cancelled because of this? It just seems like she's... she has been. Well, no. she's chosen her battlefield, and regardless of what you think of it, you know, it is her right to choose it. And there's a lot yeah. of attention given to it, and James makes the point that there are many, William Dalrymple and Jarvis Cocker, are also boycotting Israeli products as a result of the dispute with Martin, the treatment of the Palestinians. So I, I do find it very unfair. You know, it's not really a surprise that she would have these feelings, and, you know, she's... Okay, there are, there are questions about whether there is a whiff of hypocrisy, you know, and the, the fact that her book is available in Saudi Arabia and China, and questions can be asked about that. Well, I, I, there's a lot of that that's been in the papers in the last couple of days. I sort of think it's slightly unfair, though, because I don't know if she can if she sort of decided she wasn't going to sell her books in China. I'm not sure the Chinese nation would sort of stop this and take good. stock. Yes. Whereas in Israel, yeah. because they've had an arts boycott for so long, it will get headlines. It will yeah. get noticed. Yeah, also, with both China and Saudi Arabia, you know, the idea of a boycott is to sort of be a thorn in the side of the government. And you know, China has been a closed society for so long. Yeah. They haven't always welcomed ideas or literature from the West. So actually, just by publishing there, you're being the thorn in the side of the Chinese well, government. We, had, uh, to, we were talking about this with Tim Marshall yesterday, and he said that China wanted to publish his book and then went through and uh, listed all the bits they wanted to take out of it first. Yeah. So, no, that's not, that's not published by my book. But actually, yeah. I suppose the point about authors having views, that's basically why you're here, isn't it, David? So yes, you go to the talk <laughs> where someone's plugging a book, yeah. and then you hope that they stray into areas of controversy. They it will never trouble the pages of the Times unless they do have views. Yes, <laughs> yes <laughs> exactly. You, you do want them to be outspoken, entertaining, and, and of course, informative. But yeah, I, I do, you know, I, wor I worry about where we're going if Sally Rooney is getting such a hard time for taking, you know, a principled decision, a decision that she thinks is principled. Who's been the most newsy? person this week it was very hard to gauge i mean um okay so if you if you judge it by the the prominence within the paper then it will be uh, an author talking about agatha christie's uh csi skills in fact it is fascinating agatha christie used the word scene of crime and used a crime kit long before these were ever used by the the police which and this is in what 19 her first novel which was written in 1916 had scene of crime and then poirot her second novel had a crime kit and of course it was 1920s 30s before these things became readily available to be fair so did conan doyle though it was all about sort of checking the scene of the crime and yeah, finding yeah. little bits of snuff <laughs> yes but i don't think he actually used that phrase scene of crime uh, which is now ever present in any police investigation so i, I I mean, Agatha Christie is the author that just keeps on giving. You know, there's been so many reassessments of her oeuvre, you know, and her, her sort of, her, you know, she's regarded as quite cosy, but actually, if you read her books, they can be pretty, pretty dark. And political. Yes. Weirdly political. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah totally. But she's managed to avoid being cancelled. <laughs> she has so far. Yes. Despite, despite some <laughs> of them. The festival isn't over. <laughs> <laughs> there was a We've got till Sunday. On, on the subject, because obviously Agatha Christie is always a sort of, you know, uh, blockbuster. There was a brilliant piece in the in uh, Rose Wilde's column in Feedback talking about the sort of books that, you, you know, the, the topics which always do vote. Obviously, Second World War books and you know yeah. people people love all that um and she went back i didn't realize this alan corwin obviously uh, famously uh, columnist of the times as well uh asked w h smith what subjects back in the 1970s were guaranteed to sell books 
and they said pets, golf, and Nazis. <laughs> so together, he, yeah. And so he produced a collection of essays, which he called "Golfing for Cats," which had a cover with a, go a cat on the front playing golf in front of a large swastika. <laughs> and there was no mention of any of that in the book. That was just what he put on the front. Such an alarming view of the the British nation. Um, <laughs> Uh, and then, um, but apparently in America, it, the big thing that they, they're obsessed with is former presidents, health things, and pets. And uh, so someone published a book called Lin uh, Lincoln's Doctor's Dog, uh, which is all about a dog that belonged to uh, Abraham Three Lincoln's dicks. doctor. Yeah, <laughs> ding, 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 that's all, you do. that's all you need to do. That's the secret. Really depressing me, though. I mean, they often found this with sort of like war reporting, you know, because so much of it becomes... You know, you get sort of slightly immune to sort of seeing shocking images. Yeah, yeah. And the only time people would really stop and listen is when you sort of report about animals in a war zone. Yeah. Well, as we saw with Matey and his yes. cats and dogs in Afghanistan. Prime example. Man, we run there. And of course, you can download, subscribe to the Stories of Our Times podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. And David Sanderson there, uh, covering all the goings-on at the Cheltenham Literature Festival, which you can read in the Times. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesredbox. Now, uh, one of the great things about being at the festival is who you can bump into. And I was just ambling about the place, and who, do, who should I find? It's only Charles Brandreth. Excited to be bumping into you, because yours is one of my favourite shows on Times Radio, and I thought I'd been a guest of yours many times. No, we've tried, we've tried, without well, success. Clearly, I'm having sort of fantasy moments of thinking, you know, I'm, I'm on Times Radio with Matt Chorley. When I'm not, I'm just wake. But I do wake at about five in the morning, most mornings, worrying about something. It's probably worrying that I haven't actually turned up in your studio before. Now, the reason we're here is because you're here in Cheltenham plugging your... Promoting, plugging sounds cheap. Promoting, merely drawing people's attention to your memoir, Odd Boy Out. Yes, and you're right to say plugging. That's, in a <laughs> sense, what it's all about. And it's not an unworthy thing to do. It, it all began, in a way, the, the, the big plugger of his own work was the great Charles Dickens. And I, I'm very excited because towards Christmas I'm doing, I do a, a podcast with Susie Dent, the lexicographer from Countdown, and we do a podcast every week called Something Rhymes with Purple, all about words and language. And we've been asked to do a live one at Birmingham Town Hall. And I said to Susie, we must do it. She said, why? I said, well, because we like doing them. But she said, why, why Birmingham Town Hall? I said, because I happen to know that both Oscar Wilde and uh, Charles Dickens went there to give talks. And, of course, they sold their books. So this is a tradition that goes back a long way. Was it um, Dr. Johnson who said no one but a blockhead wrote except for money? Uh, the truth is, people say to me, Charles, why are you working at your age? And I, I explain, I need the money. <laughs> I mean, I do need the money. Uh, my, my wife and I, we have three children, seven grandchildren. We've discovered over the years that money is the one thing keeping us in touch with them. So <laughs> if you're going to write a book, you want to spread the word. And in this instance, actually, it's an autobiography. So you feel quite, I've felt more personally invested in this book than probably any book I've ever done before. And both the writing of the book and now the talking about the book have been slightly strange experiences for me and not like what I'm used to. I mean, I am used to talking, I'm used to writing. I've written biographies of other people, most recently a biography of the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip. In fact, a, a version of it was published earlier this year called Philip, The Final Portrait, 
which attempted to be a final portrait of a remarkable man. Uh, but getting to know him while I was writing this book, I, I realised that he was somebody who was very much against introspection, telling your own story. Uh, and he was used to say, don't talk about yourself, talk about other people. No one's interested in you. And he came from that generation where he believed you should look up and out, not look down and in. So I was very conscious of that when I was writing this book. And I only wrote it because lockdown came along and I needed to do something because I've always felt you should be busy in life. And my tour that I was going to do of my stage show, Break a Leg, was postponed. And I was in the house. I couldn't go out and research anything. And I thought, well, the one thing I have got in this house is my own life, my own story, because I keep everything. From 1959 onwards, I've been giving a diary. And also all the papers that go with it. I mean, railway tickets, menus, um, school books, everything. Postcards, love letters, ones I've received, ones I've sent. It turns out no one has kept. <laughs> no, I, I met a couple of old girlfriends and said, have you, have, can I, have you got them? And they said, no, good God, no, Charles. We threw them away at the time. And my wife then said to me, Charles, you must understand, I'm going to write about your early girlfriends, that no girl will have kissed you except to shut you up. <laughs> now, um, the thing I'm interested in is you have a reputation for being funny and entertaining and knowing a good jolly anecdote. But did you find, because life isn't all fun and entertaining, did you find this a difficult process, looking back over the highs and lows of whatever happens in life? Are, are, there, yeah. are there bits of Giles Bandreth yeah. being sad, reflective, regretful? If you're thinking, if you're sitting there listening to this, thinking, well, actually, I've been meaning to write a memoir of our family, not necessarily for publication, but for the children or grandchildren, think carefully. I, I found it a much more disturbing and at times painful process than I thought it was going to be. What in particular? Well, my wife said to me, if you're going to do this, if you insist on doing this, um, actually try and go a bit deeper. Don't just fall back on the old name-dropping. That irritates people after a while. And, you know, don't fall back on the teddy bears and the woolly jumpers and the love of words. Actually try and work out who you are and why you are who you are. And so that's what I tried to do. And in doing it, I, I found, uh, in my case, and I think it will be interesting to the reader because I hope when people read the book, they'll think, actually, who am I? What made me? Is it my forebears? Is it my family? Is it my school teachers? School teachers influence a lot. Or is it later in life, who I married, my work? In my case, I think I was fully formed. I am what my childhood made me. What my forebears made me is quite significant. And my parents in particular, obviously. I'm not an only child, but I might as well have been an only child. Because I had three older sisters born just before the Second World War. I was born a few years after. So I'm like an only child, and I was the first boy. So I was the golden boy. In fact, my father wanted to call... If I'd been a girl, I was going to be called Mercedes, because that's what he really wanted. <laughs> so uh, there is this golden child born, and I just took it for granted that I was a golden child and I was much loved and that I could do anything because my parents encouraged me to believe that. But as I began to write this book, I began to discover who I was and then also, more importantly, who my parents were. And I learnt through writing this book the sacrifices they made to give me the life I have had. And the book is called Odd Boy Out because my publishers think, thought I was a bit of an oddity. And they had a nice picture of me as a little boy in, at the Tower of London in between a beef eater and a Coldstream Guardsman. They thought, oh, oh boy, that's a nice title. 
I wanted to call it I Hope There Is a Heaven. Because as I was writing this, I kept thinking, oh, I hope there is a heaven. I'd love my parents to be able to read this, my, my father in particular, because I'm middle class and had a middle class upbringing. My father was a solicitor. But I don't think I realised till I was writing this book how much they sacrificed to send the children to private schools. They didn't have to, but they thought it was the right thing to do. They spent, my father spent essentially more money than he earned every year of his life and eventually it caught up with him. And when he died, he died age 71 because he'd run out of rope, but also because, because when he was a boy, 17, he'd been to a fortune teller who'd um, looked at his line of life and said, oh, look, 17, you're going to live at least three score years and 10, 70, plus one, 71. And my father used to talk about that. And when he got to 71, within a week, he was dead. Wow. So it's a book about parents, it's a book about teachers. For, for people of my generation, it's a trip down memory lane because it's about the 1950s, 1960s. For people like you, uh, Matt, and the younger generation, it's it's history. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I think it's quite interesting because it's British history uh, and it's quite domestic. It's about what I watched on TV. Yeah. Um, it's about family life. It's, and also it's about, it's about middle-class hardship which is a subject, I think, that isn't actually much tackled. Everyone spends slightly more than they have. And I think that's a middle class, but, you know, nobody, unless you're a gazillionaire, yeah. nobody thinks they've got enough money. And you're always trying to, you know, you buy that car that you probably can't afford or you move the house and all that. One thing I do want to ask you about, because yeah. um, because we do politics on, on my show normally, is, of course, you were a Conservative MP. You were a whip. Was. Do you reveal the dark secrets of the Whip's office in your book? No. That, you have to read another book of mine called Breaking the Code, which is still in print, um, published by Biteback. And that is an account, a diary, because I keep a diary, of my time in the Whip's office. Though there are a lot of politicians in this book, um, and you'll discover, if you read the book, how I've shaken hands with every Prime Minister, I was going to say since Harold Macmillan, but if you read the book, you'll discover how I managed to shake Winston Churchill's hand as well. Wow. So there's politics yeah. in it, but it's not a political book. Um, it's really a, it's a book about growing up and what makes us the people that we are. Um, so, yeah, uh, I hope it will make people... In fact, I know people have kindly said it does make them laugh at times, in a good way. And it does also... I think it, that you shed a few tears. I certainly did when writing it. When discovering things about myself and about my family and I, one of my sisters who had a lot of mental challenges, and I think my, my mother, though I didn't realise at the time, uh, suffered from bouts of depression. I never understood why she was you know, in bed all day long. Uh, but that obviously, in retrospect, I know I see all that. And it's quite interesting to think about your parents. And in some ways, it's heartbreaking to think about your parents after they've gone. And in a way, that's why I hope there's a heaven, because I would love to be able to say thank you to them. So I hope there is a heaven, and that God, the ultimate librarian, I hope that she has subscribed to uh, Penguin Books and found herself a copy of Odd Boy Out for the heavenly shelves. What, what, a, what a lovely um, uh, message to have, to have got out of... Because of, of so many celebrity memoirs, I was sort of... A funny thing happened to me in the... the toothbrush factory and and then that's the end of it i'm interested in having now done that it was a lockdown project it's your whole life in a book what's the next chapter for giles brandreth is there a, a thing that you'd like on your cv or in the, the 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 extra chapter in the back of the book 
I like doing new things. I like doing different things. I knew the psychiatrist, Dr. Anthony Clare, and he once said to me, don't be frightened of change, Charles. I think you're frightened of change. And I'm quite conventional. Um, and he said, change is the salt in the soup of life. People say don't rock the boat, but actually a little gentle rocking does you good. So I tried to test myself to go out of my comfort zone. And I tried that with the book. Because, as you rightly say, I mean, I've done the Oxford Book of Theatrical Anecdotes. Mm. I've written a biography of somebody like the Duke of Edinburgh where the story is a colossal story. Um, but this, personal, intimate, private, and to, to do that, to laugh and to cry. I'm somebody who sees the glass half full, mm. always. But it doesn't mean to say I don't realise the other half must be empty. Just finally, just because you do have a reputation for... Not so much name dropping, but just having a great. I don't know how you remember all these things, and whether it's poems or anecdotes or something. Give me your best, your current best, big name celebrity anecdote. Well, I met Matt Chorley. <laughs> exactly. Well, I thought the viewers would enjoy that. In, in a, I'll tell you my favourite poem at the moment. Perfect. And I went to a funeral the other day. We haven't been to funerals for a while, but I went one. Went one. It was an old friend, a good friend, and he was of, of an age. And at this funeral, somebody recited these four lines. From quiet homes and first beginning out to the undiscovered ends, there's nothing worth the wear of winning but laughter and the love of friends. So that's what we want in life, laughter and the love of friends. Hundred, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. Giles Mann, it's been an absolute joy. Thank you so much for joining us on Times Radio. Yeah, and I'll tell you about that encounter with Putin on another time. <laughs> uh, but he's a smooth operator, I can just tell you that much. Charles <laughs> Bandrith there. Bye. Up next, uh, you'll be able to hear our debate on personality in politics. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. A smile I, well, I like to paint. Um, oh, I make things. You are the weakest link. Goodbye. <laughs> No, I don't find it nauseating. I find it very refreshing. I have a thing where I make models of 
I mean, when I was in London, we mayor of London, we built a beautiful... I make buses. There's only one person I can remember round here knifing a foreign secretary, and I, I think I'm looking at him. I turn it into a bus, and I, so I, I put passengers. You OK, know, that's paint, what you do to enjoy yourself. I paint, no, I paint no. the passengers enjoying themselves. OK, great. On the wonderful bus. Great. Yeah, how much does personality matter in politics? Does it matter? Should it matter? Who has it and who doesn't? Uh, and can they learn it? That's what we discussed in a, a brilliant panel discussion at the Cheltenham Literature, Literature Festival. I was joined by Peter Cardwell, a former special advisor to several cabinet ministers, uh, Tom McTague from The Atlantic and Times Radio's very own Aisha Hazarika. So let's take a listen. Starting with Peter, I asked how big a factor personality actually is in politics today. I think it's less a personality and probably more a persona because obviously in politics there are people who have a very, they have the public facing rule and the private facing rule. We respond to that in some way, but is it is it really true? And it's very difficult to know that. And of course, that's the thing, of course, people always said about Gordon Brown, that he was someone that um, in public came across as very, very serious and very uh, kind of academic in a way and, and failed to connect. Yet when you met him personally, when he was prime minister before or even afterwards, um, he was someone who was very engaging. John Major as well, the grey man of politics, who has an amazing personality. And also, I think one thing I'm sure you want to talk about, Matt, is, is in terms of when politicians are in office and what they feel they can be. I mean, Ed Balls, of course, in office was someone who a lot of people didn't really respond to particularly well, thought he was maybe a bit boorish, maybe a bit serious. And then, of course, he went and strictly come dancing and everybody realised, you know, he had a, had a great personality. And actually, I remember, <laughs> I remember uh, Yvette Cooper uh, giving a talk one time after Theresa May had famously done her dancing uh, on t and, and uh, taken the hand out of herself. And she said she was echoing the words of the vice presidential debate in 1988 when she said, uh, you know, Theresa May thinks she can go from hated politician to national treasure simply by dancing on television. Theresa, let me tell you something. I know Ed Bowles. <laughs> I married Ed Bowles. Theresa, you're no Ed Bowles. <laughs> I'll come to you in a second, Tom. Uh, but Aisha, from your perspective, having worked with politicians, does all that ring true from what Peter was saying, that there's the sort of the real person and then there's a the sort of public-facing personality? Yeah, I mean, often when you're preparing politicians for their sort of media things, the most difficult things to prepare for are the sort of personality um, interviews where somebody wants to do sort of a more in-depth background piece so you can go through all the policies and, and brief what the policy is. Then you get to the tortured bit, which is like, and now to you, Minister, as a person. And the problem is that a lot of... Pers like, everyone has a personality. It's not that politicians don't have a personality. But often the I can think of a few. No, but, but the worst thing is that the personality they have is so unappealing, you're like, let's not share that with the public. Let's, like, make up a different persona. And I think... One of the things that is really, really hard is that, like, if if the, if your boss is somebody who has basically been a career politician, and they've wanted to be, uh, you know, a, a top-flight politician since they were kind of yay high, they are quite boring, or the bits of their personalities are psychopathic. You know what I mean? In terms of like, how have they? So it's very hard to like fake a hinterland. So like when um, Alice Thompson and Rachel Sylvester do these interviews, they do these quick fire rounds at the end where they're like strictly or bake off. And 
you'll t- sometimes there's some politicians they don't even know what those things are and like you like it's there was this great episode i think it was the thick of it and it was this thing called the zeitgeist tapes where they had to sort of kind of try and educate politicians about sort of normal popular culture things and there is a lot of that that goes on in politics but i think one of the things that is hard and peter sort of alluded to it and you mentioned ed miliband when you are in the public eye it is very difficult to keep your confidence up because everybody is just scrutinizing every single inch of you you know you know how you look your hair how you eat a bacon sandwich like everything basically and suddenly you're meant to go out and be this big kind of personality but actually you're quite diminished inside because you know you're so paranoid and so insecure about yourself so I think that is that's why Boris Johnson is quite a remarkable character because he does seem to like just genuinely not care Tom, to what extent, in, you know, you and I have worked together uh, reporting on a lot of the people we're talking about. There's a, it seems like there's like just enough person. We don't want a very boring person because they're of no use to us, you know, writing about the showbiz, showbiz for ugly people that is, that is politics. But you don't want too much, but actually for a long time, Boris, Boris Johnson's probably a bit too much personality. Critics of Jess Phillips would say a bit, well, I mean, steady on. I mean, we like a bit of straight speed, but that's a bit too much per- personality. Is there a sweet spot of just enough Political personality. I don't know because some of those characters that you can think of, I don't, I don't know, somebody like David Cameron, you know, they might have hit that sweet spot and then and look what happened, you know, complete disaster. I don't know. I, I remember speaking to um, a, a, a special advisor who worked for Cameron and he said the absolute killer when you're working for a politician is that, or, or for a, a leader, is for them to go into a room and not want to be the centre of attention. If they're kind of shying away, it's a, just a killer, and you can't do anything with it. You need your, your, the person you're representing to want to be there, to want to lead, to want to be the most interesting person in the room. And obviously with Boris Johnson you have that, although I think he's such a fascinating character because he is also can be quite depressive and... Um, kind of loner you know he can just go into himself and disappear and and some people who have seen him say he can do this in a room if he is not the main attraction or if somebody's if the conversation is veered off to somebody somebody else he kind of sulks and that's a kind of that's just just an amazing sort of insight into the into the man Kissinger talks about um the leaders only get decisions that are kind of 51 49 decisions easy decisions that are you know 80 20 70 30 they happen way down the chain somebody else has made those decisions they don't arrive at the prime minister or the president's desk so you're getting these 51 49 decisions and 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 the job of a leader is to make the decision before they've had all of the information and the facts they have to make it early and, and how do they do that? They, they rely on their instincts and their character. Let's talk about Blair and Brown, because I think a part, I don't know if many of you have seen this, this, the BBC series, which is absolutely fascinating, all about the whole sort of period of New Labour. But actually, in Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, you have the exact thing that we are talking about. One of them, and I don't want it, whether it's personality or stardust or charisma or whatever you call it, one of them had it, one of them didn't. You know, in so many ways, they were the same. They were elected at the same time. They went on the same political journey, uh, and yet one of them had something that the other one didn't. Do you think that's fair, Aisha? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the tragedy about the whole Blair and Brown thing was that they were like this kind of perfect 
unit. They were the total kind of yin and yang. They were like this amazing double act. And Tony still does just have it, whatever it is. You know, you could be in a room and have your back to the door, but you would just feel that Tony had arrived in the room. There was a sort of crackle in in the air and you could smell the fake tan. No, 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 no. It's like... Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's live. No, no. Um, and, um, and, and I, but, I, I but, think the tan's probably real. <laughs> <laughs> but then I think the same was true of... Um, actually, when I interviewed George Osborne for um, my book about Prime Minister's Questions, he made this point about him and David Cameron that David Cameron was had this kind of effortless sort of public persona and was very, very skilled at the dispatch box and was very comfortable being a performer. And George Osborne was this really amazing tactician and strategist, and he often fed the lines into David Cameron. And he thought he'd be really good at doing Prime Minister's question, but said he was absolutely terrible at it, and he kind of accepted that he just didn't have what Cameron had. And he would sort of like kind of say, look, I'm the guy that everybody booed at the Olympics and things like that. So it's kind of knowing if you have it or not. But the tragedy is, is when politicians clearly don't have it and they think they have it, <laughs> it's really bad. One of the things as is, is journalists told me, we always sort of use this test, is this someone you want to go down the pub with as a test of, you know, that connection? And, you know, it gets polled all the time. In fact, there was a poll uh, this week. Uh, it was to coincide with the British Kebab Awards. Uh, but it asked the question... Um, who would you rather go for a kebab with and who would you trust to make the kebab? <laughs> and, uh, two, two very, very different questions. Two very, very different questions. <laughs> and more people wanted to go for a kebab with Boris Johnson than Keir Starmer, but more people trusted Keir Starmer <laughs> to make the kebab. And on the one hand, and this is the sort of thing that, you know, we'll get, if I discuss this on the radio, we'll get messages from people saying, what a load of nonsense, why aren't you focusing on the issues? But actually, in a single question, you get to... Politics is a people business, and you get to the character of someone. And at the moment, maybe going for a kebab is more what people are looking for. But over the next two, three, four years, Boris Johnson's got to prove he can make the kebab. <laughs> I think the right called... measure of chilli and garlic sauce. <laughs> yeah. uh, but with a real shortage of meat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we've all slaughtered our own pigs. <laughs> But this, this sort of thing, I think it's very easy. Someone could look at this event, Tom, and say, you know, personality politics, why are you even talking about that? Why aren't you talking about the Northern Ireland Protocol? Why aren't you talking about levelling up or reforming the NHS or social care or whatever? But, because this thing matters, and actually the personality of the two characters will have a massive part in the next election. Well, absolutely, and they had a massive um, part in, in Northern Ireland. Just take that issue. You know, Boris Johnson made a political decision, as we are, as we are now seeing, that he just needed to cut that off, end the sort of the bleeding as he saw it, you know, in Westminster, get through the election, and then I'll sort it out. Theresa May would never have done that. She was kind of... She, she sort of was weighed down by this sense of duty that I can't do that. No prime minister could ever put a border in the Irish Sea. I can't do that. And she gets crushed by Boris Johnson. So the personality matters enormously. And I think, coming back to Peter's point about um, persona... You know, I think what's fascinating about, about Boris Johnson is he's the guy that you want to go for a pint with, you know, the, or, or, or go for a kebab with. But he doesn't, go for a, he doesn't go for a pint. He doesn't go to the pub. He's not that guy. Are you sure? 
I think also the question of um, how big your personality still is quite gendered in British politics as well. I think it's really, really difficult, A, for a woman to get to the top of politics, particularly in the Labour Party. I'll own that myself before anyone <laughs> uh, jumps in on that. But, you know, it's, I think, like, women who get to the top of politics are not afforded... Well, very few politicians are afforded the leeway that Boris Johnson has. He is quite a unique figure from that point of view. But, you know, I think women who are in senior positions do find it quite hard. They find it quite hard to kind of judge how... Because if, if, if a female leader kind of rocked up looking really messy or, you know, was a bit slapstick or said something offensive, you know, yeah. she would not last. That's an important thing to sort of factor in as well, which, again, does show you we do have quite a long way to go in terms of big politics being anywhere near gender equal. Like you mentioned, Jess Phillips, she's probably the only pol female politician I know with that really, really big, big personality. And while that people love her for it, as you said, Matt, she's also been penalised for it. When she went to be leader of the Labour Party, people were like, well, you can't take her seriously because she's, she's got too big a personality. Person but Angela Rayner... Angela Rayner, yeah. Gets, ...gets massive grief for saying things. Actually, if Boris Johnson had said the equivalent thing, yeah. I'd have gone, isn't he brilliant? Yeah. <laughs> Marvellous. Oh, he's yeah. so funny. Yeah. Nobody's ever perfectly behaved, are they? I mean, you know... I have to confess, when me and my friends sort of used to run through the fields of wheat, um, the farmers weren't too pleased about that. I've been up all night super-gluing the backdrop. In short, it is time to put up or shut up. We're talking personality politics. Some politicians have it, some don't, and some have even tried to teach it to themselves. Uh, I spoke to Michael Cockle, the BBC documentary maker, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about how Howard Wilson had basically taught himself how to have a personality by watching JFK press conferences. And then, you know, all that stuff of smoking a pipe on TV, but smoking expensive cigars in private. Well, at the Personality Politics event here at the Times and the Sunday Times Children Literature Festival, I asked Peter Cardwell, a former special advice of course whether Keir Starmer could be taught how to have a personality I mean I think the thing the problem with Keir Starmer I think he does have a personality it's just not a very interesting one um, and I think that the more he tries to tell his story and you know how many times have we heard his backstory you know he's got a mum and a dad yeah, that's not, that's <laughs> right. I mean if I hear the donkey story one more time I mean maybe it's just not that interesting um, and I think that you, you can't fake it um, you can't teach it and I think you shouldn't have to either I think we should have a, a range of politicians I think we should have politicians who have big personalities little personalities I think we should have people from all walks of life in politics and I think the slight problem is that you is that you've got to you've got to the genuine bits of a politician are what's going to is what's going to make them win uh, what's going to make people respond to them and to put that across in the best way you can is the way forward because you can't you know there's no point in Keir Starmer doing a bungee jump. There's no point in Keir Starmer trying to be something he's well, not. Well, as we saw yesterday, there's no point in Keir Starmer trying to reverse an HGV lorry. <laughs> well, he, he failed his test, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's right. Um, and, I mean, somewhat ironically, has worse HGV-related headlines than Boris Johnson, which is quite an achievement, given the crisis at the moment. Could, could you, Aisha, could you teach <laughs> Keir Starmer to... I mean, it's an interesting... And I think this whole business of, you know, you need the backstory and you need to talk about how your dad had hands uh, and all that thing... <laughs> Boris Johnson has never done a speech going into his full family arrangements, partly because... 
Claudia Long's speech. It would go on for yeah, even exactly. longer than Keir Starmer's. And the child support agency. But does all that, really does all that matter? Because actually, you worked for um, you worked for Ed Miliband, and actually, I wonder whether actually the thing about Ed Miliband is a bit odd. That is fair, isn't it? I know he was your former boss, and I wonder whether voters who take a passing interest in politics they look they looked at David Cameron and thought he's a posh twit, but I've come across a posh twit before. This guy who likes baseball and Rubik's cubes, who grew up in these like North London left wing, nobody's come across anyone like that before. And do you think that people just tell that? And no amount of trying to make Keir, uh, Keir Starmer Red Miliband seem more normal will work because they're not normal. Well, I think the thing that they both have in common is that they're the leader of the Labour Party. And I think you do have to factor in that um, being leader of the Labour Party, particularly in opposition, is literally the worst job in British politics. Actually, it's the second worst job in British politics. The worst job is being leader of the Labour Party in Scotland. That is actually, <laughs> like, the worst job ever. So I think whenever you take over, you have got a lot stacked against you. From the minute Ed... Yes, I mean, there's no question Ed looks a little bit funny, looks a bit like you know, there was a Wallace and Gromit kind of thing. <laughs> But he wasn't some kind of, like, monster. But from the day he was elected, there was a narrative that was already set against him. You know, it was red-ed, he was, like, some kind of terrible communist, even though all his policies have been introduced by a Conservative government now. Um, you know, his brother, the story about his brother, all this sort of... So I think when you're, like, leader of the Labour Party, you, are, you already start with a natural disadvantage. So it was interesting when Keir Starmer was elected... Having followed Jeremy Corbyn, you know, that is really, really difficult if you want, like, the Labour Party being in a weird position. But so many people I was speaking to in the Labour Party when they were making their decision was like, this guy looks the part. He doesn't look weird, like Ed Miliband. He, he's not wearing a donkey jacket like Jeremy Corbyn. He looks the part. He's a sir. He's white. He's male. He's had this... Um, he's got a lovely wife. He's the most normal man you could get from the Labour Party... And, yeah, everyone's like, oh, God, he's a bit weird now, isn't he? I mean, it's also I... interesting. It was seen as, like, a good counter to the, the Boris Johnson. You know, you've got Boris Johnson, some wild character, and he's the sort of yin and yang and actually is a good counterpoint. He was going to prosecute him at the dispatch box. And, like, what do you, what do you fight a populist with? So I think he needs to double... I mean, he's never going to out-funny... Yeah. Boris Johnson, right? He's never going to sort of match him in the charisma stakes. He's never going to be hosting Have I Got News For You. That's not his thing. And he shouldn't try to do that. I mean, my advice to him, and, you know, I would say this to him, I know him a bit, the thing that's really interesting, I think, about him is his actual work backstory, not his parents' backstory, not all the stuff with the llamas or the donkeys or whatever it is. It makes him sound like Dr Doolittle. He's not like a... I think his really strong suit is he's done a really serious job before this job. You know, he was like this country's top prosecutor. You do not just get that job by being some kind of Egypt. You know, you have... He's got a fine mind. He's obviously got a very ruthless streak to him. So if I were his team, instead of trying to kind of bring out all of this, hey, here's what I do on a Saturday, here's me playing football, here's me trying to be a normal person, he's not a normal person. He's the chief prosecutor in the country. They should actually lean into that a little bit more. They should sort of make that his character thing rather than I'm going to try and... You know, here's my Piers Morgan moment. Here's the bit where we're all crying about the past. Like, nobody wants to see you crying. We want to see you, like, going after the bad guys like you did in your last job. That's what we want to see you do. One question I wonder is whether... 
Are we wrong even to be having this conversation? Is there something weirdly British about the fact that the guy on the zip wire, the guy who hid in the fridge, the guy from Have I Got News For You, you know, the Dulux dog of British politics <laughs> is, is the Prime Minister? And by focusing on that rather than policy, is it the media's fault? Is it the political conversation's fault? Is it voters' fault? Should we just sort of, as a country, should we be more serious about this stuff, Peter? Um, not necessarily. Um, I mean, I think we have had a number of prime ministers, certainly even in my lifetime, who've had very, very different personalities, very, very different approaches. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. And I think that, you know, we can't blame the media because they give us what we want. You can't, uh, you know, you, the electoral system elects all sorts of weird and wonderful people to parliament for all sorts of different reasons. I mean, I remember when Boris Johnson was in the absolute wilderness after he resigned as foreign secretary and Tom was absolutely right to say that you know things change very 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 rapidly uh, I remember asking a colleague of mine at one of the ministries I worked in how Boris Johnson was getting on and I said you know are you close to Boris are you this minister I said you know do you do you keep in touch with him and he said well he borrowed my razor this morning so yes we take keep in touch because he'd pop around his house to, to shave uh, which was a sort of slightly weird thing but he was an absolutely in the wilderness and then came back because partly because of his personality partly because of his approach and partly because people wanted something that was completely different to to Theresa May so my uh, I think Aisha's absolutely right and Tom's absolutely right in terms of Keir Starmer he needs to kind of own the serious thing own the competence and own the the courage in terms of a lot of the work he did as director of public prosecutions especially I mean the the most interesting part of his uh, speech for example at Labour Party conference I thought was the uh, the stuff in regard to Stephen Lawrence and other cases that he had prosecuted that's the interesting bit um, and I think he needs to lean into that and own that and, and not try to be something he's not because the big personality, this is what I do at the weekend stuff, that's not really, it's part of him, yes, but that's not the dominant characteristic and that's kind of what he needs to do. But I think we, we need, in, the, in this country, we, the, there's a brilliant book by Isabel Hardman called Why We Get the Wrong Politicians and the central thesis is essentially if we keep bashing politicians, saying they're all out for themselves, money-grabbing, you know, power-hungry people. And some of them are. Some of them are. There's no doubt about that. I've seen it up close. But most of them aren't. And I think we need to be a bit more respectful of people, anybody, for any party who stands for election. And then we'll get the right people in those situations. And then we'll get people of even an even greater diverse range of backgrounds and, indeed, personalities who will run for office and, indeed, high office. Picking up on, on the point you made, I do think... I don't want to build sort of Paul Feast about it, but I do sometimes think we do have to, you know, that, that phrase, we get the politicians we, we deserve. Of course no one wants to be all kind of Paul Feast. And I wasn't one of these people saying, oh, Boris Johnson shouldn't have made any jokes in his speech. It's great to make jokes. Humour is a very powerful political tool. It's a powerful way of communicating with people. But I think it is incumbent on all of us, whether we're um, the public or particularly us as politicians, to not just get sucked into the sort of personality trap. I do remember a journalist after the 2015 general election saying, you know, I don't think we did give adequate... Like, we, we literally scrutinised the Labour plans to absolute death. I don't know if we did the same level of scrutiny on, on the Conservative things. So I do think that there, there is a point where you do have to look at all of the other things as well. But that doesn't mean politics has to be completely... Boring, of course you have to have a personality, you do need to have humour, but sometimes I do worry that 
sometimes our politics, like you do brilliant thing on Prime Minister's questions, PMQs unpacked. There's just never any substance anymore. Like PMQs used to be a, a time where, yes, there'd be a lot of bluster, there'd be a lot of, you know, argy-bargy, there'd be some jokes, really good jokes, but you would often get something out of a session at PMQs. You just don't get anything anymore. And I think that is making our politics weaker. It might be that we're just getting old age. <laughs> no, it's not as good as the one in the good old days. In the event we did earlier, or the old PMQs, it was exactly the very first question, it, the first televised PMQs, was Tim Yo doing a toadying. Wouldn't you agree with me that no, we're all marvellous? Uh, uh, but yeah, it's. Um, uh, what about, although I wonder whether social media plays a part of this as well, uh, Tom. Yeah, but I think what's interesting about Britain is we probably haven't had a mainstream politician who's been really good on social media in the way that Donald Trump sort of used it to, to, to take himself to the presidency. I mean, I think the one politician who has used it very, very powerfully was uh, Nigel Farage, who obviously has a, 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 a personality. You know, the, the, I think there is a legitimate question, would, would Brexit have happened without yes. Farage's ability to use social media? I mean, he went to um, European Parliament and, and used it as a, as a stage to be able to get videos of himself and put it onto Facebook and to Twitter. Without that, I think nobody would have ever seen those, uh, seen those speeches. And I think we're yet to see someone. Boris Johnson actually is pretty useless on, uh, on Twitter and, and YouTube. So what happens when somebody comes along and, and uses that? And I think on personality, I, I still think it is probably the most important thing in, in politics and when you're judging a, a character rather than their policies. Because... You're electing them for five years. You don't know what crisis is going to come. You don't know how they're going to respond to a certain situation. And I think their, their flaws and their, their instincts just come to the fore in those moments. So you see somebody like Blair is willing to take gambles. Did, did, we, did we know that early on? Brown is just will not take a gamble, so just misses opportunities which he, you know, could have changed his premiership entirely. I, was, I became fascinated with um, uh, when I was researching an earlier profile of, of Boris Johnson, and it was about um, leaders are just uh, much more likely to have lost a parent early in their life than than normal people. So they've they've got this psychological um, blow in, in in their childhood. So I, I think these these things are buried very deep in in in, in all of us. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.